We're in for a treat. I met Dan Fisher about 30 years ago. Matter of fact, 31 years ago, I had just moved to Oklahoma City, went to a ministerial alliance meeting, and uh, I met Dan Fisher. He's been a legislature two terms. He's been a gubernatorial candidate. You'll hear some about that later. I'm not going to go into that bio. I want to talk to you about Dan himself. I met him. He was speaking at a ministerial alliance. The man had on a pair of boots and jeans and a black shirt with gold horses on it. And I went, I like that guy. Later on, I found out some out by where I have a little land, he built a house. I stopped in to see his log cabin, found out he broke a wrist building that. Anyway, i uh, kind of known him all these years, and uh, he has spoken to our district headquarters and all across this world. All those things you'll hear in a video shortly. I, uh, I just want to say thank God for people who will take a stand in a day where you can be ridiculed and ridiculed and belittled and belittled. Thank God for the Dan Fishers who have the courage to stand up and say something about this nation. I, I, I see them all the time, him and Pam running down the road. They live out by us and, and I see them down the county roads and every once in a while we'll stop and say hi. And, uh, it was amazing this morning. My wife and I were running a little bit late. And of all things coming down the road, guess what? I see somebody walking down the road and I went, Dan, it's way too late to be out here doing that. And thank God it wasn't them. Anyway, life's good, isn't it? I appreciate these people. I thank God for them. This man's going to hopefully entertain you some, but he's going to give us facts. And lady, young people, I want you to know the history as it genuine was, not as it's been twisted the last 30 years in this nation. I think we ought to deal with truth and reality. In just a few minutes, Dan's going to come, and he's going to give us a presentation. I don't think you'll be forgetting it, and i just been praying for him all week. He's not coming right now. He'll be here in just a second, but I want you to give him a cross-legacy welcome this morning as we present the Black Robe Regiment with Dan Fisher. Will you give him a hand, please? Like the black-robed preachers of the 18th century, Dan is a pastor who boldly proclaims the principles of liberty from the pulpit. As a leader of the modern-day black-robed regiment, Dan serves as co-pastor with Paul Blager of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Convinced that pastors have a biblical mandate to be salt and light to their culture, Dan has also served two terms in the Oklahoma legislature, and was an Oklahoma gubernatorial candidate in 2018, all while remaining a full-time pastor. By retelling the story of the Black Regiment, Dan hopes to educate and mobilize today's preachers to engage in our culture war, just as the Patriot pastors did theirs in the 1700s. Dan and Percussion Films produced the 90-minute video bringing back the black-robed regiment, which provides a cinematic overview of the amazing story of the daring deeds of the original Patriot pastors who stood against British tyranny. The accompanying book by the same title provides the more thorough, heavily researched backdrop to the story, must-reading for anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the role the 18th century church played in winning America's independence. 
Now sit back and prepare to travel back with us to a time when the American church stood up for what it believed in as we present Bringing Back the Black-Robed Regiment. To the pulpit we owe the moral force which won our independence. They prepared for the struggle and went into battle, not as soldiers of fortune, but with the word of God in their hearts and trusting in Him. England sent her armies to compel submission, and the colonists appealed to heaven. John Wingate Thornton Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war, my fingers to fight, my goodness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, and my shield. Our muskets leaning against the back wall speak as loudly as anything I might say this morning regarding our present crisis. Today we are called upon to either surrender our liberties, our religion, and our country, or to defend them at the point of the sword. There's no other choice. It's we who would gladly live peaceably among all men we're now compelled to fight. It is therefore, my brethren, an indispensable duty that we owe to God and our country to rouse up and bestir ourselves and being animated with a noble zeal for the sacred cause of liberty, to defend our lives and our fortunes to the shedding of the last drop of blood. We must turn our plowshares into swords and our pruning hooks into spears and learn the art of self-defense against our enemies. Now there are some who pretend it's against their conscience to take up arms in defense of their country. But can any rational being suppose that God requires us to contradict the laws of self-defense which He God Himself has written in our hearts? 
be careless and remiss or to neglect the cause of our country will expose us to the displeasure of Almighty God. To save our country from the hands of our oppressors ought to be dearer to us than our lives. And next to the eternal salvation of our souls, it is the thing of greatest importance. A duty so sacred, it cannot be dispensed with for the sake of our secular concerns. The cause of virtue and freedom is the cause of God upon earth. To indulge cowardice in such a cause, it argues a want of faith in God. And he that is so lost to humanity as to be willing to sacrifice his country for the sake of avarice or ambition has arrived at the highest stage of wickedness that human nature is capable of. And deserves a much worse name than I at present care to give him. But I think I may with propriety say that such a person has forfeited his right to human society. The love of our country. The tender affection we have for our wives and our children. Do now loudly call upon us to use our best endeavors to save our country. Either surrender liberty or defend it. It is your choice. I've been your pastor a good number of years. But the time has come for me to fight the good fight on a different battlefield. To defend liberty, both yours and mine. It is the right thing to do. And if I fall in the fight... I hope to see you someday in a land where the shadow of death will never again fall upon us. And liberty is eternal. Men, who will go with me?
That's what it was like. To sit in one of the churches in my time and hear one of our patriot pastors address the principles that we all believed in our hearts. We believed were found in Scripture. Well, we... uh, we tried to avoid the conflict as much as we could. But um, the time came when we just couldn't. Not any longer. We had to take a stand. We believed we pastors should should lead out in the effort. I mean, the church ought to be the tip of the spear, shouldn't it? <laughs> I know. Probably you're thinking right now, pastor? What's a pastor doing wearing a colonial officer's uniform. Well, I have uh, been asked today to share with you our story of a time when the American church stood up for what it believed in. Well, first, let me introduce myself. My name is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. It's kind of a long name, so you can just call me Peter. My enemies call me Devil Pete. Because when I was a little younger, I had a pretty fiery temper on the battlefield. See, I was a pastor. I grew up in Pennsylvania. My father, Henry Muhlenberg, helped to found the Lutheran Church in Pennsylvania. Now, I pastored down in a little community in Virginia called Woodstock, Virginia. There, you had to be ordained as an Anglican preacher. So, I kind of wore two hats. As far as the preacher is concerned, I was an Anglican. But don't worry, I was Lutheran through and through. And I preached every Sunday. Now, I would climb up into my pulpit like the pastors did in our day. I don't know what preachers look like in your day, but every Sunday, we preachers would climb into our pulpits wearing our preaching robes. Every one of us, it didn't matter whether you were Lutheran or Anglican or Presbyterian or Baptist. You wore your preaching robe. And we didn't just preach in our robes. We also wore what we called preaching bands looks a little bit like a scarf and it would bend and fit around our necks like so. Now I may look strange to you, but this is the way we preachers dressed every Sunday in my day. And boy, we'd get up into the pulpit and we didn't do what some of your preachers I understand do in your day. You have something, what do you call it? Political correctness? The only thing we were worried about was bi- biblical correctness. And, and you have some principle, you call it. Let's see if I can get it right. Separation of church and state. I don't even know what that is, but I can tell you this. We didn't believe in it. We preached it from our pulpits. Now, don't make any mistake about it. We believe the gospel was the most important thing. And we preached so that men and women could know Christ. So that they were prepared for eternity. But we also found tucked away in God's word many passages of scripture that dealt with government and justice and righteousness and the need for believers to stand up and fight the good fight. Now, I'm sure that some of you are probably under the notion that the reason we fought our war was because of excessive taxation. And I will admit to you that taxation without representation, that was a a common phrase in my day. But you see, uh, it was more than that. Oh, not. The, the tea tax we found particularly onerous. It caused some of my friends to throw a little tea party down in the Boston Harbor, if you know anything about that. 
But I want you to know, we were standing against what we saw as tyranny, plain and simple. And we believed that tyranny, unchallenged and unchecked, would eventually come to our churches. Tell us what we could preach. Tell us what we could believe. We weren't having that. No part of it. So we took our stand. Now, like many preachers in my day, I was also engaged in government. I served in the Virginia House of Burgesses before King George shut us down. I served there with some fine gentlemen. You might recognize some of them from Virginia. A gentleman farmer by the name of Mr. George Washington. I also served and got to know probably the greatest Christian orator I've ever known, Mr. Patrick Henry. I I was there. I was there at St. John's Episcopal Church in 75 when Henry gave that rousing speech. Why? I remember it like it was almost yesterday, especially the part, maybe you, maybe you've heard of it, where he said, is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I don't know what course others may take, but as for me, you can give me liberty. Or give me death. When he made that dagger motion to his chest. Every one of us understood what was at stake. Well, I rode back to Woodstock and continued to pastor my little log church. But I realized the time for me to not stand had passed. So I announced to my congregation that January the 21st, 1776, would be my final sermon as their pastor. I uh, got there to a full house, climbed up into the pulpit, opened my Bible to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. You probably remember that's the there's a time for all things chapter. But my focus was verse 8, where Solomon said, there is a time of war. I closed my Bible, I stepped down out of the pulpit and I said, ladies and gentlemen, there is a time to preach and there is also a time to pray, but there is also a time to fight. And that time has now come for me. Well, my people were accustomed to my being a pretty fiery soldier in the army of the Lord, but I wasn't quite certain that they were prepared for what they were about to see because, you see, I stepped off to the side and I removed my preaching bands and I also removed my preaching robe and revealed the colonel's uniform that you saw me wearing a while ago. You see, Mr. Washington and... Mr. Henry had recommended me to raise a brand new regiment in Virginia. It was the 8th regiment out of our colony. And we would just simply call it the 8th Virginia Regiment. We'd be a cavalry unit. So you might say I was trading in my preaching robe for a set of riding spurs. Well, I stood there in front of my people. And not knowing how they would respond, I had positioned a young man outside with a drum. And I told him, I said, when I open the doors of this church, buddy, I want you to begin to roll on that drum. And I opened those doors. And that's exactly what he did. And then I turned around to the men of my church and I challenged them to follow me in the fight for liberty. They knew me as a man of peace, but they also knew that I believed that if necessary, liberty must be defended at the point of a sword if necessary. Well, to my great delight, my congregation stood and just unprovoked, unled, began to sing the old Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty 
fortress is our God. And if you could believe it, one by one, men from my congregation got up, walked down the aisle, met me outside, and wrote their names underneath mine on the muster roll of the 8th Virginia Regiment. I had the privilege of leading those men from 1776 to 1783, all the way through the war. We were at some of the biggest engagements of that war. I uh, was very quickly promoted and became a member of General Washington's staff. In fact, here's an old painting of General Washington's staff. And you've looked to the far right, there I stand holding a musket. Not just preacher Peter Muhlenberg, now I'm commander Peter Muhlenberg. Found out that I made a pretty fair commander on the field. Not just a preacher, but a commander. General Washington became a good friend. A good friend. Peter Muhlenberg. He was... Brave on the battlefield, faithful in the cabinet, honorable in all of his transactions. He was a sincere friend and an honest man. It seems like I can almost see General Washington now. (laughs) Well, as I said, we were at some of the greatest engagements of the war. I was there at Yorktown. My men and I assaulted Redoubt 10 and eventually forced the surrender of Cornwallis. In the famous painting that Mr. John Trumbull painted that hangs in your capital rotunda, I'm there seated on a horse. If you look to the far right in that painting, you'll notice there are a number of us gents on horses. And if you look real close and zero in, there I sit on my horse, Lutheran, Anglican preacher Peter Muhlenberg, now promoted to Major General Peter Muhlenberg. You have something in your capital called Statuary Hall, and my home state of Pennsylvania chose me as one of their honorees. And today, my statue stands in your capital building with my left hand on my sheathed sword, but flowing over my right arm and back behind me, the robe that I laid aside to lead the eight. I was proud to do it. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that it was just a little handful of us rebel rousers and troublemakers. Oh, no. It was preachers from every denomination, not just Lutherans or Anglicans. The Presbyterians got in on it. In fact, I don't know what they're like today. But in my day, the Presbyterians were the fiery preachers. One of those Presbyterians was James Caldwell from Elizabethtown, New Jersey. Boy, was he a hothead. In fact, some of us believe that he said things just to make the British mad on purpose. He'd say things like, well, sometimes it's more righteous to fight than it is to pray. Well, if he intended to make the British mad, he succeeded because they put a bounty out on his head. So, every Sunday, old Caldwell would walk into his pulpit with two loaded flintlock pistols hooked in his belt like so. He'd climb up into the pulpit, pull them out, lay them on the pulpit, preach his sermon, take the, the, the pistols, hook them back in his belt, and then go to the door and greet his congregation. I've always said a preacher in the pulpit with a couple of loaded flintlock pistols, he takes an offering. I promise you're giving something. I, you're not going to walk out of here like that. Maybe your pastor would like to try that technique, brother. It might uh, It might work. Well, that's the kind of man that James Caldwell was. Well, the British were serious, and so if you can believe it, when they invaded Elizabethtown, New Jersey, one of those redcoats crossed over into the Caldwell home, saw Hannah Caldwell, James Caldwell's wife, through the window, shot her, killed her in cold blood instantly. The very seal of that county of New Jersey today depicts the moment when uh, that uh, redcoat killed her. Well, Caldwell found out about it, helped to eulogize his wife, 
And then he was off to Springfield, New Jersey, because his men were engaging the British there. But when he arrived, he found out that his men were in a world of hurt. You see, when they when he got there, he heard his men yelling, Wadding, we need wadding for our muskets. Now, these muskets were fine fighting weapons. But without the wadding that you would shove down the barrel to hold the shot tight, they were rendered relatively useless. So what were they going to do? They're in a firefight with the British. Well, old Caldwell knew what to do. He jumped on his horse and he rode down to the first Presbyterian church of Springfield, New Jersey, ran inside and been to gather up as many hymnals as he could carry, those hymnals filled with Isaac Watts songs. I don't know if you sing his songs in your day, but in my day, oh, we sang some of his songs like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. That's an Isaac Watts hymn. Well, what's that preacher going to do with those hymn books? Well, he rides back to his men. He begins to throw the hymn books out at his men saying, Men, tear out the pages. Use the pages for wadding. So get this picture. Here's Presbyterian preacher James Caldwell standing there throwing out hymn books. His men are tearing Isaac Watts hymns out of those books, shoving them down their barrels, firing away at the British. And all the while, preacher Caldwell's yelling, give them Watts, boys, put Watts into them. That's the Presbyterian preacher James Caldwell. See, what I'm trying to share with you today is that we took a very, very strong stand for liberty. It's a lot of... A lot of men I could tell you about. Eh, let me th- let me tell you the story of one. Let's see, when was it? It was in September of 77. I think maybe somewhere around the 10th. Yeah, I think that was probably the date. We were encamped on one side of the Brandywine Creek. The British were on the other side. We knew a fight was coming for sure. Well, General Washington had asked a young preacher. His name was Joab Trout. He was just 25 If he would preach a sermon to kind of buck up the courage of the boys. So late that afternoon, just as the sun was headed down on the horizon, we gathered together. General Washington was there. I was there. General Anthony Wayne, many of the soldiers. And old Joe Abtrout got up there and he preached a powerful sermon. Now he had to hurry because we're running out of daylight. And right at the end of his sermon, he prayed this magnificent prayer. And then he closed with the words, and God prosper the call. I got to tell you, we were ready to fight those red coats right then and there. But the sun had set. The fighting would have to wait. So, the very next day, we engaged those red coats at the Battle of Brandywine Creek, September the 11th, 1777. And we were right in the mix, right in the, right in the fight. And you know that young preacher, Joab Trout, he got in there right with us. He was killed that day. Defending his liberty, mine, and ultimately yours just 25. So when I tell you that we believed strongly enough in our principles that we were willing to stand for them and die for them if necessary, when we wrote our Declaration of Independence and Mr. Jefferson and his committee penned those words, especially the words that we were willing to give our lives and our fortunes and our sacred honor, those weren't just words to us. They weren't just platitudes. We believed them. And we backed it up with actions. Well, I got to tell you, King George did not like us one bit, especially us preachers. Oh, he blamed the whole war on us, especially the Presbyterians. He said, well, this is nothing more than a Presbyterian rebellion. Some of us are kind of funny that he gave all the blame on the Presbyterians. 
The son of the British Prime Minister, Horace Walpole, told Parliament, there's no use in crying about it. Cousin America has eloped with a Presbyterian parson. Probably referring to old John Witherspoon. We'll talk about him maybe a little later. Well, sure enough, they gave us the title Black Regiment. Some of you may be wondering, where did that title come from? Well, obviously, it refers to our robes. And it was an American, if you can believe it, an old Tory. That's what we called those who sided with the British. His name was Peter Oliver. And he was the, the first one to coin the phrase Black Regiment. And today, it is a badge of honor that I believe any preacher ought to wear. Any Christian, any church leader. Well, right about now, you're probably saying, well, I've never heard about you preachers. I've never heard this part of our history. I'm here to tell you there's a lot of history that you don't know or that you've been lied to about. Well, let me illustrate to you. It was April the 18th, 1775. Late that night in Massachusetts, there were a number of riders on horses that were going out across the Massachusetts countryside yelling, the regulars are out, the regulars are coming. One of those riders was a man by the name of Revere, Paul Revere. Now maybe you've heard about Mr. Revere. But I wonder if you've heard this part of the story. That night when he rode into Lexington, he rode up to that very house. You're saying, well, what is so special about that house? Well, that's where the preacher lived. Preacher Jonas Clark lived in that house And he and a deacon named John Parker had been helping to train the men of Lexington how to stand together as a unit and fight. They were doing it all over New England. They were calling themselves Minutemen. Who forgot to tell you that the famous Lexington Minutemen were trained and led by a preacher and a deacon? Oh, but the plot thickens. The night that Mr. Revere rides up to Jonas Clark's house, he has two special guests staying with him. Mr. Samuel Adams and Mr. John Hancock. Well, the minute Revere rides up to the house, they invite him in and they have this council of war and they begin to decide, what are we going to do? The British are on their way and if someone doesn't stand up and at least give a show of arms, it's just like we're rolling over. And they said, will the men fight? Jonas Clark said, I trained them for this very hour. They will fight and if need be, die too under the shadow of the house of God. So it was settled. The next morning, Those Lexington men would take their stand against the British. Well, there weren't that many men who showed up to the second alarm, but on the 19th of April, 1775, Mr. Uh, uh, John Parker, you see his statue there, standing right there about where they stood, and preacher Jonas Clark led some 77 Lexington men out to face, if you can believe it, some 800 redcoats. They're outnumbered like 10 to 1. Now, I'm convinced that probably Preacher Clark and Parker didn't intend to actually cause bloodshed, but someone fired off a flintlock pistol. And when that pistol went off, the Redscoats took it as a signal to open fire. And if you can believe it, as they were telling the Minutemen to go home, the British began to fire into the backs of those Lexington men. And the Battle of Lexington was on And our war for independence had officially begun. Battle, well, it wasn't really much like a battle. It was more like a skirmish. only lasted about 15 or 20 minutes. But I tell you, when the smoke had cleared and the dust had settled, those men had done exactly what their preacher would said they'd do. Eight of them had given their lives for liberty. Another ten had been wounded. Well, 
If you know your history, you know that they went on over to Concord that afternoon to confiscate weapons. The British did. All they found there was the uh, the colonial militia standing up on Barrett's Hill. And there was another preacher there, if you can believe it. Reverend William Emerson lived just a few hundred miles from the old North Bridge. You might recognize the name because his grandson, the famous poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, wrote the famous Concord Hymn, the poem. Well, what's old preacher Emerson doing? He's telling the militia, men, if we're going to die, let us die here. Well, eventually... The colonial militia marches down off of, of the, the hill and begins to engage the British. They gave them a licking for sure, so much so that the, the British began to march away. Unfortunately, there were Minutemen groups lining the road all the way back to Boston. And they, they, they fought a running fight with those red coats all the way back to Boston. In fact, you can tour the road today. They've preserved it. It's called Battle Road. 17-mile running fight all the way from the old North Bridge back to Boston. And many of the ones who fought along that road were preachers and men from their churches. I can tell you story after story like that. Well, a few months later, in June, we had our first major engagement outside of Boston. I understand that you call it the Battle of Bunker Hill. It was really fought on two hills, Breeds and Bunker Hill. Mr. Trumbull, that famous painter of my day, painted a very important moment in that battle when General Warren, he was also a physician, was killed. But if you look at the left-hand corner up there, there's a man standing surrounded by flags and arms. And if you really look closely, you'll notice that he's wearing a pair of preaching bands like I had on a while ago. Well, the reason being is he's a preacher. You see, Mr. Trumbull understood the role that preachers played in our War of Independence, and so he intentionally included preachers in his painting, and this one is Dr. Samuel McClintock. He was there from New Hampshire. His family was so committed to the cause of liberty, by the time the war was over, they had sacrificed three of their four sons. That's believing something strongly, isn't it? We did. We, we, we believed it strongly. We preachers were there. And it wasn't just McClintock who was there at that battle. All kinds of preachers were there. David Avery was there from Vermont. And you understand when the fighting commenced, we preachers didn't run and hide behind a rock. We didn't get in the back with the men and say, men, you go fight, we'll pray. Oh, no, no, no. We were right out in the middle of the fight, many times fighting ourselves. In his journal, Avery tells us that he found a conspicuous spot and stood there with his arms lifted to heaven while the musket balls whizzed all around him, praying that God would give us the victory. That's courage. That's the kind of example that men and women need from spiritual leaders. Not just leaders who are saying, go pray, but they never put feet on the prayers. This musket I'm holding here is a 78 caliber. It was carried by Lieutenant William Perkins at the Battle of Bunker Hill. These are the stories that we desperately need to know. I don't know if your generation knows these stories, but they need to hear about these preachers. Let me run through just a real quick list of some of these men so we won't take up too much time this morning. This is Naphtali Daggett. Naphtali Daggett was not only a preacher, but he was the president of Yale. When the British invaded New Haven, Connecticut, you know what he did? He and about a hundred of the boys rode out from the school and fired a number of shots at the British to slow their advance. Unfortunately, those redcoats captured old Daggett and they beat him so brutally that he died a few months later 
from his wounds. I can tell you about this man. This is uh, Pastor John Adams. Now, not the vice president or the president. This is John Adams, the preacher from, from Durham, uh, New Hampshire. He, uh, he was a, a, a very active preacher. In fact, before the war started, he and his men went out and gathered up all the ammunition and all the gunpowder so it wouldn't fall in the hands of the British. I'm told that he hid the gunpowder under his pulpit. Now, if you can just imagine, every Sunday while he's preaching these fiery sermons, he's standing on hundreds of pounds of gunpowder. It's a wonder that one of those fiery sermons hadn't made a spark blown the church sky high. But from what I hear of the watered-down sermons your generation hears, your modern preachers would be in no such danger because their watered-down sermons couldn't make a spark if you doused them with kerosene and threw a torch on them. But not preachers of my day. Oh, no. We preach the truth and let it fall where it fell. I could tell you about John Treadwell. I'm told he kept a loaded flintlock in his pulpit like this. And every Sunday when he went up to preach, he had his Bible under one arm and his cartridge box under the other because he didn't know which one he'd need before he was finished. Jonathan French from Andover, Massachusetts. Why, when he heard about the Battle of Bunker Hill, you know what he did? He resigned his church, went home, got his flintlock and his medical bag, marched off and joined the army. Example after example I could give you. And we were a bold lot. Probably no better example of the boldness that we preachers have than old John Cleveland. This is a drawing of old Cleveland. He was from Ipswich, Massachusetts. Now, now he was infuriated, and let me tell you why. Uh, King George had made the British general Thomas Gage the king of Massachusetts, I guess. And he made it pretty hard on the preachers and the churches because they blamed the war on us. So, oh, Cleveland was so angry that he wanted to write a letter to General Gage. But now how was he going to get a letter to that British general? And then he landed on the idea. He would print the letter in the newspaper. And then not only could General Gage read the letter... But all the citizens could read it as well. Here's a little section of John Cleveland's letter to General Gage. Thou profane, wicked monster of falsehood. Your late infamous proclamation is as full of notorious lies as a toad or a rattlesnake of deadly poison. You are an abandoned wretch. Without speedy repentance, you will have an aggravated damnation. In hell. I've often said, Preacher Cleveland, why don't you tell us what you really think, right? Do you realize he could have been executed for that? You see, he didn't care. Let me tell you why he didn't care. Preachers of my era cared more about truth than we did applause and comfort. And that's the reason that Cleveland wasn't afraid to write those words. It wasn't just Presbyterians and Lutherans. The Baptists were in on it. Charles Thompson from Warren, Rhode Island, when the British came in there, they burned his house and his church. Well, he joined the Continental Army. He served fighting for liberty. Unfortunately, he was captured by the British and he was thrown on a prison ship. Now, these prison ships were terrible. Oh, they're terrible places. In fact, if you ask me, those soldiers on those prison ships faced a fate worse than death itself. During the war, almost 12,000 of our patriots died on those prison ships. That highest death rate was among the preachers. 
Oh, Moses Allen was a preacher who was thrown on a prison ship. Finally, after many days on that ship, he decided he'd jump overboard and try to swim to safety. Unfortunately, he underestimated just how weakened his body had become. And when he jumped into the water, he found out that he didn't have the strength to swim. You know what those redcoats did? They stood there and watched him as he drowned. And then when his body floated to the top, that he stood over on the bank and left him there to decay. That's what they thought about us preachers. Joab Houghton was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Hopewell, New Jersey. Like me, he climbed up through the ranks and, and was promoted uh, as he served. But when the war was over, he continued to serve and he became a member of the very first legislature of the state of, of New Jersey. Four days after Lexington and Concord, word reached New Jersey about the fight. Well, O'Houghton gathered all of his congregation together and he jumped up on that very rock right there. Today it's the top of the memorial that describes what he did. But he stood on this rock and here's what he said to the men of his congregation. He said, men of New Jersey, the Redcoats are murdering our brethren in New England. Who follows me to Boston? I'm told that every man in Houghton's church went home and got his musket and followed their pastor off to fight for liberty. Over and over and over I could tell you this story. Many of us preachers were there during that terrible cold winter in 77, 78 at Valley Forge. I'm telling you, we didn't think it was ever going to stop snowing. The coldest I've ever been in my whole life. And there we were pinned in, freezing to death, starving to death, just simply trying to make things hang on until the spring And we did. We continued to drill. We continued to practice because we knew we had to live to fight again that next spring. And it was preachers like me and Houghton and others who ministered to the troops and and, and to General Washington. And I really believe that we played a major role in helping hold that army together so we could live to fight again when the warmer weather came. I'm told that today, if you go to Valley Forge, you can actually tour the reconstructed Muhlenberg Brigade barracks where my men and I spent that terrible cold winter. Well, I told you that we preachers were bold, but i got to also tell you that we were brave. And there is none that illustrates that better than this gentleman right here. This is Thomas Allen. He was from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And as you can see, he was not only the chaplain, but he was the commander of the Berkshire Militia. He was a preacher. To show you what kind of a fighting man he was, at the Battle of Bennington, Vermont, on August the 16th, 1777, he led his men out onto the battlefield wearing his preaching robe. Once he got his men all assembled where they were supposed to be, he walked right out toward the British into the killing zone, jumped up onto a stump, and gave them the opportunity to surrender before telling his men to open fire. Well, they recognized him, and somebody said, well, there's Preacher Allen. Somebody ought to pop him. And the British fired a whole volley of musket fire at him. Well, wearing his hat... One of those musket balls went through his hat and put a hole in it. I'm told that infuriated, he walked back to his men, stood beside his brother Joseph, and he said, Joe, I'm a better shot than you. You load, I'll shoot. And they fought all day long together at the Battle of Bennington, Vermont, as they returned the favor to the British. All day long, that preacher fought. He survived the battle. When the battle was over, he helped to care for the wounded 
the dying. But at the end of the week, he had to jump on his horse and ride some 30 miles back to his church. But when he got there, preparing to preach, one of the men from his church came up to him and said, Preacher, I need to talk to you. I heard the other day over Bennington, you fought like a common soldier. Alan said, well, yes, I did. Every man had to do his duty. He said, but you're a preacher for Pete's sake. I mean, surely you didn't kill anybody, did you? And Alan said, well, I, I, you know, I don't know if I killed anybody, but I did notice that behind a particular bush, there was a frequent flash. And every time that flash occurred, one of our men would fall. So I took steady aim and I fired at that bush. I don't know if I killed anybody, but I put out that flash. And that's Pastor Thomas Allen. His brother was Moses, the one who drowned trying to escape that prison ship. See, the sacrifice of liberty that was paid was high. Now, some of you are probably wondering, well, where in the world did preachers like you guys come from? Never heard about preachers like you. Well, you see, a few years before the war began, the churches in the colonies were backslidden, dead. And then something happened. I understand that your historians call it the first great awakening. God did something. And a mighty revival swept through our churches. Men like George Whitfield would literally stand on kegs and preach in public while they were blowing horns and beating on drums to try to drown him out. Some of the greatest preachers we've had in our history, men like Jonathan Mayhew, Jonathan Edwards preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, George Whitfield, as I mentioned. All those men were preaching in those days. And young men like me grew up in that kind of an atmosphere. So when the time came to fight, we were ready. We were ready. Well, I was not the only preacher in my family. I had a number of brothers, and one of those brothers was named Frederick Muhlenberg. Frederick was a preacher like me, but very much not like me. He pastored over in New York City, so he was a city preacher. And he said that politics and war were beneath the man of a cloth. And he criticized me for being involved to one of our other brothers. Well, when I found out about it, I got to tell you, I was mad. I was spitting mad. And so I shot an old, a letter back off to old Frederick, letting him know exactly what I thought. In, in fact, with your indulgence, I would, uh, I'd like to read a portion of this letter that, that I, uh, that I sent to my brother. Um, it begins with, Frederick, I am a layman like all those around me, but I am a, uh, I'm a member of society as well, and my liberty is as dear to me as to any man. Now, should I sit still and enjoy myself while the best blood of the continent is spilling? Heaven forbid it! Now, do you think if America is conquered that that we'll be safe? Well, far from it. And wouldn't you sooner fight like a man than die like some dog? I am called by my country to its defense, I said. Now, Frederick, the cause is just and noble. And so far am I from thinking that I am wrong. I am convinced it is my duty so to do. A duty I owe to my God and to my country. Take that, Frederick. Well, you think that caused my brother to see the light? I don't know. But I can tell you he soon felt the heat. 
Because not long after that, the British invaded New York. And you know what they did? When they came into New York, they did what they did in most towns. They either burned or desecrated the churches, including my brother's church. Barely got out of there alive. Now, what does my fancy pants preacher have to say about getting involved in politics and war? Well, Frederick, who said preachers shouldn't get involved, immediately joined the Continental Army. And then after he joined the Continental Army in the Congress, he joined and, and became a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And my brother, who said that preachers shouldn't get involved, became the very first Speaker of the House of the United States of America after the war. And one of the original signers of the Bill of Rights. Quite a turnaround, wouldn't you say, for a guy who said preachers shouldn't be involved in politics? So what changed my brother? Well, I wish I could tell you that it was the letter. But I don't think that's what changed him. Here's what I think changed him. I think he got pinched so hard it hurt. And he finally had to do something. Now my question to you is this. Those of you in your 21st century. The church of my day did its job. We stood up. My question to you is how hard are you going to have to be pinched before you wake up like my brother did and take your stand? Liberty hangs in the balance with every generation. Mine did its job. The verdict's still out on yours. Friends, I... uh, I spent the majority of my life in the ministry to this point. I'm 59. I'll be 60 next month. I uh, started preaching when I was 16. But you know, all the time that I've been in the ministry, except for just the last few years, I didn't know a thing about the preachers I've been telling you about. I'd never heard of Peter Muhlenberg. I'd never heard of Frederick. I'd never heard of Thomas Allen. I didn't know that Paul Revere rode to a preacher's house when he went to Lexington. I didn't know any of that. You know why? Because I was not taught it. I had no idea that preachers like this, William Smith, understood that our religious and our civil liberties are linked together in what he called an indissoluble bond. And that if you lose one, by definition, you lose them both. See, I I didn't understand that. I I didn't realize that men like George Duffield played such a critical role in our liberties. In fact, after the war was over, Duffield was writing a letter talking about the role that the preachers played in our war of independence. You might want to listen to just a moment of it. As quick as a flash of lightning glares from pole to pole, so sudden did a military spirit pervade those then limited colonies. Nor were those of the sacred order wanting to their country when her civil and religious liberties were all at stake. But as became fateful watchmen, they blew the trumpet on the walls of our Zion and sounded an alarm for defense. Would to God that preachers today were sounding the alarm. Would to God that the pulpits were ringing with the notes of freedom. See, this is why preachers preached election sermons. And why they preached to the military in what were called artillery sermons. See, they knew 
what I've now come to understand that our liberties run on two rails. You have civil liberty and you have religious liberty. And as long as those two rails are secure, the train of state can go right down the tracks. But you surrender one of those rails and guess what happens to the train? Runs off the tracks. Friends, look around you. That's what's happening today in America. We're losing our liberties. Now some say, well, we're Christians. We'll just focus on spiritual things. And I totally agree. But when did things like liberty and justice cease being spiritual? You see, we started to compartmentalize our lives into the secular and the sacred. Our founding generation knew nothing of that. Here's John Witherspoon. He was a Presbyterian preacher. Served in the convention that wrote the Declaration of Independence and was also the president of Princeton. Listen to what he says. There is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved entire. It's what I said a while ago when I was quoting William Smith. You lose one, you lose them both. So the idea that we'll just let the government do whatever it wants and we'll just meet together inside our walls won't work. Because once they get enough out of control out there, they'll come in here. This is what the black regiment understood. See, the Bible tells us that God created three institutions so that we can live in civil society with one another. The home, the state, and the church. But for the last hundred years, we've told preachers and Christians, don't you talk about politics in the church house. And so during that period of time, that institution has risen up and it's trying to exterminate the other two. Look at the attack on the church and the family, the home. So it's time that we become salt and light. Henry Ward Beecher, a New York preacher, an abolitionist, once said, It is sometimes said that preachers must not preach politics. I tell you, they'd have to toe hop and skip and jump through two-thirds of the Bible if they did not. I challenge you, go home and see how many Old Testament heroes you can find that weren't involved in government at some level. You can't hardly find any. You know why? Because there was no separation. That's a relatively new concept that's damning our children and our grandchildren. Historians knew it before the war between the states, 1862. Frank Moore said the preachers of the revolution did not hesitate to attack the great political and social evils of their day. Today, you can't get them to touch it with a 10-foot pole. A historian two years before that, John Wingate Thornton, said the fathers of the republic, notice this, did not divorce politics and religion, but they denounced the separation as ungodly. What are we told today? The exact opposite. We're told if you mix politics and religion, that's when you've sinned. Our founding framing generation thought the exact opposite. And it's why we have the liberties that we enjoy today. Adrian Rogers from Memphis, Tennessee, now in heaven, said, It was God who created human government. It is therefore inconceivable that God would create government and then tell his people to stay out of it. But that's exactly what we've done. Now, what happens when the church goes silent? What happens to a culture? Well, we only have to look at 1930s Germany. You see, during the time when the Nazis and Hitler were rising to power, did you know that the church leaders were trying to make all kinds of allegiances and alliances with the Nazis, thinking if they could stay neutral, they'd be safe? How well did that work out? Millions paid the price, not only in concentration camps, but on battlefields. There were a few who spoke out. 
Men like old Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But he paid with his life. Because the church waited too long to speak out. Is that what we're going to do? Samuel Adams, one of our founders, one of the, the leader of the Sons of Liberty in Boston, didn't ever claim to be a prophet, but he said something once that I think is very prophetic. He said, if ever a time should come that vain and aspiring men possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its most experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. I would submit to you today that the time that Adams was talking about is upon us. We need our most experienced patriots and who better than Christians who've been set free by the blood of Jesus to love and understand liberty the most. We shouldn't be bringing up the caboose. We ought to be leading the train. But we're hiding. Don't offend anybody. You know, for years, I've suspected what Barna discovered in 2014. He was asking preachers, Why don't you guys preach on these controversial subjects as if they ought to be controversial? Don't you think they're in the Bible? They said, oh, the Bible deals clearly with all those things. He said, you're going to preach on them? And they said, no. So he asked the preachers, why do you avoid certain now controversial passages of Scripture? Here's the two top reasons that preachers gave. They said, number one, we're afraid that it'll hurt our attendance. And number two, we're afraid it'll hurt the size of our offerings. So, according to the preachers in America, money and power and fame is more important to them than God's word and truth. That's where we are. Now, I think you have a pastor who's a cut above. But friends, we have Christians and church leaders and deacons and preachers all over that don't know any of this stuff. And in fact, will stand and argue with you and deny all of this. And I'm telling you, the reason why primarily is because they don't want to make waves. Well, I want to close with one last story of one last preacher. I want you, if you would, to put on your imaginary or your imagination cap with me. And let's let's travel back in time and go back to rural New Jersey. You say, well, where in New Jersey are we going? Well, we're going to a little community called the Forks of the Delaware where a preacher by the name of John Rossbrug pastored. He actually lived in that very house that you see on the screen there. We don't have a portrait of John, but we do have a portrait of James, his son, that you see there. Now, John Rossbrug, when the war broke out, was uh, getting up in years. He was 63. And uh, he never was a part of the... uh, regular military, so he would not have worn a coat like uh, Peter Muhlenberg had on a while ago. No, he would have worn a civilian's coat, something like this. And rather than wearing a tricorn hat, it's very possible that uh, Rossbrug would have worn a a preacher's hat. So he would have have looked something like this. I'd been preaching these principles from my pulpit for years. The need, the responsibility for Christians to stand up. I encouraged the young men to go and fight. But I was 63. I was a little too old to go off to war. So I I made the younger men a promise. If you go off to fight, I will stay here and I will protect your families and I will take care of them. Well, that all was fine and good until the, the Redcoats just basically rolled over General Washington and our troops at the Battle of Long Island in New York. 
It was then that I realized that, that every able-bodied man is going to have to do his duty. So I called the remaining men of my congregation together and I said, Men, we have got to rally to the aid of General Washington and to liberty. Who will go? One of the men yelled at him and said, Preacher, we'd be happy to go if you would lead us. 63. <laughs> I said, it would be my distinct honor. And so get this, at the age of 63, I saddled up. And I rode off with the men of my church. And we found General Washington's army and we joined it. We were a part of the campaign that involved the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey. Most people don't realize that a week after that battle, there was a second battle there because the British tried to retake it using the Hessian forces. During that fight, I became separated from our men by a little creek. Now you might think, well, why didn't you just jump across the creek on your horse, ride to safety? Well, that's because I knew that if the British caught me, they'd kill me for sure. See, they hated us preachers. So I knew that if I crossed that creek during the daylight, why, it'd be like shooting fish in a barrel. So what I did is I rode my horse all day long, just trying to evade capture, thinking that by the time it was dark, well then see, I could cross over the creek and then I could ride to safety and join my men and everything would be fine. What I underestimated is just, of course, how long I had to ride. And by the end of the day, I had not had a thing to drink. I hadn't had anything to eat. And so I thought, I've got to do something. And so in trying to evade capture, I rode upon an old tavern. And I thought, well, I'll go inside. Maybe I can find me a little morsel of bread or something to eat and some water, coffee, just anything. And so I went inside the tavern. And sure enough, I was able to find something to to help me to kind of regain my strength. I came back out of the tavern, and I looked, and my horse, the one that I'd ridden up on, was gone, was missing. And I'm hoping maybe he's just pulled free. So I began to walk through the trees and through the grass trying to find my horse because I knew if I was stranded flat-footed here on the wrong side of the, the creek, I'm a dead man. Well, I pushed my way through a group of bushes, a thicket, And would you believe it? I was surrounded by a squad of Hessian soldiers. (laughs) There was nowhere for me to go. They had me dead to rights. Well, these Hessians came over from Germany. The British brought 50,000 of them over to terrify us. And it worked. These men were ruthless on the battlefield. I couldn't run. I couldn't get away. And so I thought, well, maybe they'll take me as their prisoner. And so I said, please, I have a family. I'm a pastor Would you take me as your prisoner? They just laughed at me. Well, I could see there was no mercy to be had. They intended to kill me. And so I said, could I pray before I die? And he said, yes. So (laughs) I knelt there on that ground. What do you pray when you know you're just about to meet a brutal death? prayed like you would, I guess. I I prayed for my soul, which was soon going to meet the Lord. I prayed for my family, for my church. I prayed that God would help us to win this war. you got to help us win this fight, Lord. I was praying out loud, distraught, as you can imagine. And then the words of Jesus from the cross just came to my mind. Maybe the Lord brought them there. You remember when Jesus asked the Father not to blame the soldiers for his death? 
I prayed that. Those Hessians began to move in on me and I said, Lord, do not hold these men accountable for my death. You would think that that might have dented, melted those old frozen hard Hessian hearts. Didn't make a dent. As soon as I was through with my prayer, the British soldier, the officer who was commanding those Hessians said, take him. They jumped on me and they bayoneted me to death. With such fury and anger that when my body was found, one of the Hessians had rammed his bayonet into me and then broken it off in my body. Another black robe preacher by the name of George Duffield and my wife and her brother gave my body a Christian burial and Trenton, New Jersey, where where I await the resurrection. You see, when we rode off to fight for liberty, we knew some of us could be wounded. We knew some of us could possibly be killed, but you know, you just kind of push that out of your mind. You don't think about that. But the truth is, a lot of us paid a very high price. My generation was willing to die for liberty. Is it too much to ask of you to stand up and speak out for it? That's what I ask of you. Friends, we've heard the stories today of men like John Rossbrug, Joab Trout, the preacher that preached that sermon before Brandywine, killed the next day. James and Hannah Caldwell, both of them killed by the British Jonas Clark, the preacher of the Minutemen in Lexington. Samuel McClintock sacrificed three of his four sons. Charles Thompson, the Baptist thrown on the prison ship. Naphtali Daggett, the president of Yale, beaten so badly by the British that he died. And these are just the tip of the iceberg. This is why I believe that this story must be told Because we've reached a time in our culture where if the church doesn't speak up, there will be no one who believes enough truth to do it. We're the firewall. We're it. This is why my wife and I, even though I've pastored for almost all my life, and am today a co-pastor over in Edmond at Fairview Baptist Church with Paul Blair, we still travel all over. Paul's preaching there today so I can be here Because I believe it's critical that this story be told. It's critical that we bring back the spirit of the black-robed regiment. Nobody wants a war. Nobody's calling for people to go get guns and start shooting government agents. But I'll tell you what we are calling for. I'm calling for a return to what we believe. For preachers to get on fire from God and stand up for what is right. And stop worrying about the tithers and the attenders. And worry about how he's going to give an answer to God. For what he does or doesn't preach. So I've been praying that God would raise up a new black regiment. That old spirit and heart. Maybe another great awakening. If not, though I am no prophet... I'm here to tell you, our republic is lost. The church has always been, but certainly is today, our only hope. 
without us, it's a lost cause. So I'm going to ask you if you would to join with me in prayer. Now I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment. But first, I want you to pray a prayer between you and God. You know, it's easy enough to say, boy, we like old Dan doing that, man. Dan, take it and go. Do it. Tell the story. Preacher David, do the work. That's just two of us. This is an army. It takes us all. What happens if the commanders run out on the field and all the soldiers stay in the trenches? The commanders are turned into Swiss cheese, right? (laughs) And the battle is lost. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and say, God, what should I be doing? What can I do? God, one time asked Isaiah, who will we send? Who will go for us? Today, God is asking you that very question. Would you bow with me in prayer? Just ask the Lord. What does he want from you? There's a call for men to be In a land where all are free There is hope for liberty If we go Father, we pray today that your spirit would speak to every one of us and that, Lord, we would fill this call, that we would go. Lord, even today, there may be some men and women, young men, young ladies, who maybe your spirit is moving upon today and they just need to come down here, find a place and pray and say, God, here I am, send Father, I pray today that you would raise up a new Black Road Regiment with the spirit of those old leaders who believe these truths so strongly they would stand and die for them if need be. Lord, draw us to yourself as we linger here for just a moment. When they stopped to count the cost When the fight was all but lost When they faced the bitter frost They said go So Father, I pray In the words of Joab Trout from September the 10th, 1777 God, raise up this new regiment Put a spine in our backs and fire in our souls. And God, prosper the cause. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for allowing me and my team to bring the story of the Black Robe Regiment to Christ's Legacy Church. God bless you. Pray for us that God will use us to continue to share this story. God bless you. We're in for a treat. I met Dan Fisher about 30 years ago. 
Matter of fact, 31 years ago, I had just moved to Oklahoma City, went to a ministerial alliance meeting, and uh, I met Dan Fisher. He's been a legislature two terms. He's been a gubernatorial candidate. You'll hear something about that later. I'm not going to go into that bio. I want to talk to you about Dan himself. I met him. He was speaking at a ministerial alliance. That man had on a pair of boots and jeans and a black shirt with gold horses on it. And I went, I like that guy. Later on, I found out some out by where I have a little land, he built a house. I stopped in to see his log cabin, found out he broke a wrist building that. Anyway, i uh, kind of known him all these years, and uh, he has spoken to our district headquarters and all across this world. All those things you'll hear in a video shortly. I, uh, I just want to say thank God for people who will take a stand in a day where you can be ridiculed and ridiculed and belittled and belittled. Thank God for the Dan Fishers who have the courage to stand up and say something about this nation. I, I, I see them all the time, him and Pam running down the road. They live out by us, and, and I see them down the county roads, and every once in a while we'll stop and say hi. And... Uh, it was amazing this morning. My wife and I were running a little bit late. And of all things coming down the road, guess what? I see somebody walking down the road and I went, Dan, it's way too late to be out here doing that. And thank God it wasn't them. <laughs> anyway, life's good, isn't it? I appreciate these people. I thank God for them. This man's going to hopefully entertain you some, but he's going to give us facts. And lady, young people, I want you to know the history as it genuine was, not as it's been twisted the last 30 years in this nation. I think we ought to deal with truth and reality. In just a few minutes, Dan's going to come, and he's going to give us a presentation. I don't think you'll be forgetting it, and I've just been praying for him all week. He's not coming right now. He'll be here in just a second, but I want you to give him a cross-legacy welcome this morning as we present the Black Robe Regiment with Dan Fisher. Will you give him a hand, please? Like the black-robed preachers of the 18th century, Dan is a pastor who boldly proclaims the principles of liberty from the pulpit. As a leader of the modern-day black-robed regiment, Dan serves as co-pastor with Paul Blager of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Convinced that pastors have a biblical mandate to be salt and light to their culture, Dan has also served two terms in the Oklahoma legislature and was an Oklahoma gubernatorial candidate in 2018, all while remaining a full-time pastor. By retelling the story of the Black Regiment, Dan hopes to educate and mobilize today's preachers to engage in our culture war, just as the Patriot pastors did theirs in the 1700s. Dan and Percussion Films produced the 90-minute video bringing back the black-robed regiment, which provides a cinematic overview of the amazing story of the daring deeds of the original Patriot pastors who stood against British tyranny. The accompanying book by the same title provides the more thorough, heavily researched backdrop to the story, must-reading for anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the role the 18th century church played in winning America's independence. Now sit back and prepare to travel back with us to a time when the American church stood up for what it believed in as we present 
Bringing Back the Black-Robed Regiment. To the pulpit we owe the moral force which won our independence. They prepared for the struggle and went into battle, not as soldiers of fortune, but with the word of God in their hearts and trusting in Him. England sent her armies to compel submission, and the colonists appealed to heaven. John Wingate Thornton Blessed be the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war, my fingers to fight, my goodness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, and my shield. Our muskets leaning against the back wall speak as loudly as anything I might say this morning regarding our present crisis. Today we are called upon to either surrender our liberties, our religion, and our country, or to defend them at the point of the sword. There's no other choice. It's we who would gladly live peaceably among all men we're now compelled to fight. It is therefore, my brethren, an indispensable duty that we owe to God and our country to rouse up and bestir ourselves and being animated with a noble zeal for the sacred cause of liberty, to defend our lives and our fortunes to the shedding of the last drop of blood. We must turn our plowshares into swords and our pruning hooks into spears and learn the art of self-defense against our enemies. Now there are some who pretend it's against their conscience to take up arms in defense of their country. But can any rational being suppose that God requires us to contradict the laws of self-defense which He God Himself has written in our hearts? To be careless and remiss or to neglect the cause of our country 
will expose us to the displeasure of Almighty God. To save our country from the hands of our oppressors ought to be dearer to us than our lives. And next to the eternal salvation of our souls, it is the thing of greatest importance. A duty so sacred, it cannot be dispensed with for the sake of our secular concerns. The cause of virtue and freedom is the cause of God upon earth. To indulge cowardice in such a cause, it argues a want of faith in God. And he that is so lost to humanity as to be willing to sacrifice his country for the sake of avarice or ambition has arrived at the highest stage of wickedness that human nature is capable of. He deserves a much worse name than I at present care to give him. But I think I may with propriety say that such a person has forfeited his right to human society. The love of our country. The tender affection we have for our wives and our children. Do now loudly call upon us to use our best endeavors to save our country. Either surrender liberty or defend it. It is your choice. congregation I've been your pastor a good number of years but the time has come for me to fight the good fight on a different battlefield to defend liberty both yours and mine it is the right thing to do and if I fall in the fight I hope to see you someday in a land where the shadow of death will never again fall upon us. And liberty is eternal. Men, who will go with me?
That's what it was like to sit in one of the churches in my time and hear one of our patriot pastors address the principles that we all believed in our hearts we believed were found in scripture well we uh, we tried to avoid the conflict as much as we could but um, the time came when we just couldn't not any longer We had to take a stand. We believed we pastors should should lead out in the effort. I mean, the church ought to be the tip of the spear, shouldn't it? (laughs) I know. Probably you're thinking right now, pastor? What's a pastor doing wearing a colonial officer's uniform? Well, I have uh, been asked today to share with you our story. Of a time when the American church stood up for what it believed in. Well, first, let me introduce myself. My name is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. It's kind of a long name, so you can just call me Peter. My enemies call me Devil Pete because when I was a little younger, I had a pretty fiery temper on the battlefield. See, I was a pastor. I grew up in Pennsylvania. My father, Henry Muhlenberg, helped to found the Lutheran Church in Pennsylvania. Now, I pastored down in a little community in Virginia called Woodstock, Virginia. There, you had to be ordained as an Anglican preacher. So, I kind of wore two hats. As far as a preacher is concerned, I was an Anglican. But don't worry, I was Lutheran through and through. And I preached every Sunday. Now, I would climb up into my pulpit like the pastors did in our day. I don't know what preachers look like in your day, but... Every Sunday, we preachers would climb into our pulpits wearing our preaching robes. Every one of us, it didn't matter whether you were Lutheran or Anglican or Presbyterian or Baptist. You wore your preaching robe. And we didn't just preach in our robes. We also wore what we called preaching bands. Looks a little bit like a scarf and it would bend and fit around our necks like so. Now, I may look strange to you, but this is the way we preachers dressed every Sunday in my day. And boy, we'd get up into the pulpit and we didn't do what some of your preachers, I understand, do in your day. You have something, what do you call it? Political correctness? The only thing we were worried about was biblical correctness. And, And you have some principle you call, let's see if I can get it right, separation of church and state. I don't even know what that is, but I can tell you this, we didn't believe in it. We preached it from our pulpits. Now, don't make any mistake about it. We believe the gospel was the most important thing. And we preached so that men and women could know Christ. So that they were prepared for eternity. But we also found tucked away in God's word. Many passages of scripture that dealt with government and justice and righteousness. And the need for believers to stand up and fight the good fight. Now... I'm sure that some of you are probably under the notion that the reason we fought our war was because of excessive taxation. And I will admit to you that taxation without representation. That was a a common phrase in my day. But you see, uh, it was more than that. Oh, not the the tea tax we found particularly onerous. It caused some of my friends to throw a little tea party down in the Boston Harbor, if you know anything about that. 
But I want you to know, we were standing against what we saw as tyranny, plain and simple. And we believed that tyranny, unchallenged and unchecked, would eventually come to our churches. Tell us what we could preach. Tell us what we could believe. We weren't having that. No part of it. So we took our stand. Now, like many preachers in my day, I was also engaged in government. I served in the Virginia House of Burgesses before King George shut us down. I served there with some fine gentlemen. You might recognize some of them from Virginia. A gentleman farmer by the name of Mr. George Washington. I also served and got to know probably the greatest Christian orator I've ever known, Mr. Patrick Henry. I was there. I was there at St. John's Episcopal Church in 75 when Henry gave that rousing speech. Why? I remember it like it was almost yesterday, especially the part, maybe you, maybe you've heard of it, where he said, is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I don't know what course others may take, but as for me, you can give me liberty or give me death. When he made that dagger motion to his chest, every one of us understood what was at stake. Well, I rode back to Woodstock and continued to pastor my little log church. But I realized the time for me to not stand had passed. So I announced to my congregation that January the 21st, 1776, would be my final sermon as their pastor. I uh, got there to a full house, climbed up into the pulpit, opened my Bible to the third chapter of Ecclesiastes. You probably remember that's the there's a time for all things chapter. But my focus was verse 8, where Solomon said, there is a time of war. I closed my Bible, I stepped down out of the pulpit and I said, ladies and gentlemen, There is a time to preach, and there is also a time to pray. But there is also a time to fight, and that time has now come for me. Well, my people were accustomed to my being a pretty fiery soldier in the army of the Lord, but I wasn't quite certain that they were prepared for what they were about to see, because you see, I stepped off to the side, and I removed my preaching bands, And I also removed my preaching robe and revealed the colonel's uniform that you saw me wearing a while ago. You see, Mr. Washington and Mr. Henry had recommended me to raise a brand new regiment in Virginia. It was the 8th regiment out of our colony. And we'd just simply call it the 8th Virginia Regiment. We'd be a cavalry unit. So you might say I was trading in my preaching robe for a set of riding spurs. Well, I stood there in front of my people and... Not knowing how they would respond, I had positioned a young man outside with a drum. And I told him, I said, when I open the doors of this church, buddy, I want you to begin to roll on that drum. And I opened those doors, and that's exactly what he did. And then I turned around to the men of my church, and I challenged them to follow me in the fight for liberty. They knew me as a man of peace, but they also knew that I believed that if necessary, liberty must be defended at the point of a sword if necessary. Well, to my great delight, my congregation stood and just unprovoked, unled, began to sing the old Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty 
fortress is our God. And if you could believe it, one by one, men from my congregation got up, walked down the aisle, met me outside, and wrote their names underneath mine on the muster roll of the 8th Virginia Regiment. I had the privilege of leading those men from 1776 to 1783, all the way through the war. We were at some of the biggest engagements of that war. I uh, was very quickly promoted and became a member of General Washington's staff. In fact, here's an old painting of General Washington's staff. And if you look to the far right, there I stand holding a musket. Not just preacher Peter Muhlenberg. Now I'm commander Peter Muhlenberg. Found out that I made a pretty fair commander on the field. Not just a preacher, but a commander. General Washington became a good friend. A good friend. Peter Muhlenberg. He was brave on the battlefield, faithful in the cabinet, honorable in all of his transactions. He was a sincere friend and an honest man. It seems like I can almost see General Washington now. (laughs) Well, as I said, we were at some of the greatest engagements of the war. I was there at Yorktown. My men and I assaulted Redoubt 10 and eventually forced the surrender of Cornwallis. In the famous painting that Mr. John Trumbull painted that hangs in your capital rotunda, I'm there seated on a horse. If you look to the far right in that painting, you'll notice there are a number of us gents on horses. And if you look real close and zero in, there I sit on my horse Lutheran Anglican preacher Peter Muhlenberg now promoted to Major General Peter Muhlenberg. You have something in your capital called Statuary Hall. And my home state of Pennsylvania chose me of as one of their honorees. And today my statue stands in your capital building with my left hand on my sheathed sword. But flowing over my right arm and back behind me the robe that I laid aside to lead the eight. I was proud to do it. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea that it was just a little handful of us rebel rousers and troublemakers. Oh, no. It was preachers from every denomination, not just Lutherans or Anglicans. The Presbyterians got in on it. In fact, I don't know what they're like today. But in my day, the Presbyterians were the fiery preachers. One of those Presbyterians was James Caldwell from Elizabethtown, New Jersey. Boy, was he a hothead. In fact, some of us believe that he said things just to make the British mad on purpose. He'd say things like, well, sometimes it's more righteous to fight than it is to pray. Well, if he intended to make the British mad, he succeeded because they put a bounty out on his head. So every Sunday, old Caldwell would walk into his pulpit with two loaded flintlock pistols hooked in his belt like so. He'd climb up into the pulpit, pull them out, lay them on the pulpit, preach his sermon, take the, the, the pistols, hook them back in his belt, and then go to the door and greet his congregation. I've always said a preacher in the pulpit with a couple of loaded flintlock pistols, he takes an offering. I promise you're giving something. I ain't going to walk out of here like that. Maybe your pastor would like to try that technique, brother. It might uh, It might work. Well, that's the kind of man that James Caldwell was. Well, the British were serious, and so if you can believe it, when they invaded Elizabethtown, New Jersey, one of those redcoats crossed over into the Caldwell home, saw Hannah Caldwell, James Caldwell's wife, through the window, shot her, killed her in cold blood instantly. The very seal of that county of New Jersey today depicts the moment when uh, that uh, redcoat killed her. Well, Caldwell found out about it. Helped to eulogize his wife. 
And then he was off to Springfield, New Jersey, because his men were engaging the British there. But when he arrived, he found out that his men were in a world of hurt. You see, when they when he got there, he heard his men yelling, Wadding, we need wadding for our muskets. Now, these muskets were fine fighting weapons. But without the wadding that you would shove down the barrel to hold the shot tight, they were rendered relatively useless. So what were they going to do? They're in a firefight with the British. Well, old Caldwell knew what to do. He jumped on his horse and he rode down to the first Presbyterian church of Springfield, New Jersey, ran inside and been to gather up as many hymnals as he could carry. Those hymnals filled with Isaac Watts songs. I don't know if you sing his songs in your day, but in my day, oh, we sing some of his songs like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. That's an Isaac Watts hymn. Well, what's that preacher going to do with those hymn books? Well, he rides back to his men. He begins to throw the hymn books out at his men, saying, Men, tear out the pages. Use the pages for wadding. So get this picture. Here's Presbyterian preacher James Caldwell standing there throwing out hymn books. His men are tearing Isaac Watts hymns out of those books, shoving them down their barrels, firing away at the British, and all the while, Preacher Caldwell's yelling, Give them Watts, boys! Put Watts into them! That's the Presbyterian preacher, James Caldwell. See, what I'm trying to share with you today is that we took a very, very strong stand for liberty. It's a lot of of men I could tell you about. Let Let me tell you the story of one. Let's see, when was it? It was in September of 77. I think maybe somewhere around the 10th. Yeah, I think that was probably the date. We were encamped on one side of the Brandywine Creek. The British were on the other side. We knew a fight was coming for sure. Well, General Washington had asked a young preacher. His name was Joab Trout. He was just 25. If he would preach a sermon to kind of buck up the courage of the boys. So late that afternoon, just as the sun was Headed down on the horizon, we gathered together. General Washington was there. I was there. General Anthony Wayne, many of the soldiers. And old Joab Trout got up there and he preached a powerful sermon. Now he had to hurry because we're running out of daylight. And right at the end of his sermon, he prayed this magnificent prayer. And then he closed with the words, and God prosper the cause. I got to tell you, we were ready to fight those red coats right then and there. But the sun had set. The fighting would have to wait. So... The very next day, we engaged those red coats at the Battle of Brandywine Creek, September the 11th, 1777. And we were right in the mix, right in the, right in the fight. And you know that young preacher, Joab Trout, he got in there right with us. He was killed that day. Defending his liberty, mine, and ultimately yours. Just 25. So when I tell you that we believed Strongly enough in our principles that we were willing to stand for them and die for them if necessary. When we wrote our Declaration of Independence and Mr. Jefferson and his committee penned those words, especially the words that we were willing to give our lives and our fortunes and our sacred honor, those weren't just words to us. They weren't just platitudes. We believed them and we backed it up with actions. Well, I got to tell you, King George did not like us one bit, especially us preachers. Oh, he blamed the whole war on us, especially the Presbyterians. He said, well, this is nothing more than a Presbyterian rebellion. Some of us are kind of funny that he gave all the blame on the Presbyterians. 
The son of the British Prime Minister, Horace Walpole, told Parliament, there's no use in crying about it. Cousin America has eloped with a Presbyterian parson. Probably referring to old John Witherspoon. We'll talk about him maybe a little later. Well, sure enough, they gave us the title Black Regiment. Some of you may be wondering, where did that title come from? Well, obviously, it refers to our robes. And it was an American, if you can believe it, an old Tory. That's what we called those who sided with the British. His name was Peter Oliver. And he was the, the first one to coin the phrase Black Regiment. And today, it is a badge of honor that I believe any preacher ought to wear. Any Christian, any church leader. Well, right about now, you're probably saying, well, I've never heard about you preachers. I've never heard this part of our history. I'm here to tell you there's a lot of history that you don't know or that you've been lied to about. Well, let me illustrate to you. It was April the 18th, 1775. Late that night in Massachusetts, there were a number of riders on horses that were going out across the Massachusetts countryside yelling, the regulars are out, the regulars are coming. One of those riders was a man by the name of Revere, Paul Revere. Now maybe you've heard about Mr. Revere. But I wonder if you've heard this part of the story. That night when he rode into Lexington, he rode up to that very house. You're saying, well, what is so special about that house? Well, that's where the preacher lived. Preacher Jonas Clark lived in that house And he and a deacon named John Parker had been helping to train the men of Lexington how to stand together as a unit and fight. They were doing it all over New England. They were calling themselves Minutemen. Who forgot to tell you that the famous Lexington Minutemen were trained and led by a preacher and a deacon? Oh, but the plot thickens. The night that Mr. Revere rides up to Jonas Clark's house, he has two special guests staying with him. Mr. Samuel Adams and Mr. John Hancock. Well, the minute Revere rides up to the house, they invite him in and they have this council of war and they begin to decide, what are we going to do? The British are on their way and if someone doesn't stand up and at least give a show of arms, it's just like we're rolling over. And they said, will the men fight? Jonas Clark said, I trained them for this very hour. They will fight and if need be, die too under the shadow of the house of God. So it was settled. The next morning, Those Lexington men would take their stand against the British. Well, there weren't that many men who showed up to the second alarm. But on the 19th of April, 1775, Mr. Uh, uh, John Parker, you see his statue there, standing right there about where they stood. And preacher Jonas Clark led some 77 Lexington men out to face, if you can believe it, some 800 redcoats. They're outnumbered like 10 to 1. Now, I'm convinced that probably Preacher Clark and Parker didn't intend to actually cause bloodshed. But someone fired off a flintlock pistol. And when that pistol went off, the Reds coach took it as a signal to open fire. And if you can believe it, as they were telling the Minutemen to go home, the British began to fire into the backs of those Lexington men. And the Battle of Lexington was on And our war for independence had officially begun. Battle, well, it wasn't really much like a battle. It was more like a skirmish. only lasted about 15 or 20 minutes. But I tell you, when the smoke had cleared and the dust had settled, those men had done exactly what their preacher would said they'd do. Eight of them had given their lives for liberty. Another ten had been wounded. 
Well, if you know your history, you know that they went on over to Concord that afternoon to confiscate weapons. The British did. All they found there was the, uh, the colonial militia standing up on Barrett's Hill. And there was another preacher there, if you can believe it. Reverend William Emerson lived just a few hundred miles from the old North Bridge. You might recognize the name because his grandson, the famous poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, wrote the famous Concord Hymn, the poem. Well, what's old preacher Emerson doing? He's telling the militia, men, if we're going to die, let us die here. Well, eventually... The colonial militia marches down off of, of the, the hill and begins to engage the British. They gave them a licking for sure, so much so that the, the British began to march away. Unfortunately, there were Minutemen groups lining the road all the way back to Boston. And they, they, they fought a running fight with those red coats all the way back to Boston. In fact, you can tour the road today. They've preserved it. It's called Battle Road. 17-mile running fight all the way from the old North Bridge back to Boston. And many of the ones who fought along that road were preachers and men from their churches. I can tell you story after story like that. Well, a few months later, in June, we had our first major engagement outside of Boston. I understand that you call it the Battle of Bunker Hill. It was really fought on two hills, Breeds and Bunker Hill. Mr. Trumbull, that famous painter of my day, painted a very important moment in that battle when General Warren, he was also a physician, was killed. But if you look at the left-hand corner up there, there's a man standing surrounded by flags and arms. And if you really look closely, you'll notice that he's wearing a pair of preaching bands like I had on a while ago. Well, the reason being is he's a preacher. You see, Mr. Trumbull understood the role that preachers played in our War of Independence, and so he intentionally included preachers in his painting, and this one is Dr. Samuel McClintock. He was there from New Hampshire. His family was so committed to the cause of liberty, by the time the war was over, they had sacrificed three of their four sons. That's believing something strongly, isn't it? We did. We, we, we believed it strongly. We preachers were there. And it wasn't just McClintock who was there at that battle. All kinds of preachers were there. David Avery was there from Vermont. And you understand when the fighting commenced, we preachers didn't run and hide behind a rock. We didn't get in the back with the men and say, men, you go fight, we'll pray. Oh, no, no. We were right out in the middle of the fight, many times fighting ourselves. In his journal, Avery tells us that he found a conspicuous spot and stood there with his arms lifted to heaven while the musket balls whizzed all around him, praying that God would give us the victory. That's courage. That's the kind of example that men and women need from spiritual leaders. Not just leaders who are saying, go pray, but they never put feet on the prayers. This musket I'm holding here is a 78 caliber. It was carried by Lieutenant William Perkins at the Battle of Bunker Hill. These are the stories that we desperately need to know. I don't know if your generation knows these stories, but they need to hear about these preachers. Let me run through just a real quick list of some of these men so we won't take up too much time this morning. This is Naphtali Daggett. Naphtali Daggett was not only a preacher, but he was the president of Yale. When the British invaded New Haven, Connecticut, you know what he did? He and about a hundred of the boys rode out from the school and fired a number of shots at the British to slow their advance. Unfortunately, those redcoats captured old Daggett and they beat him so brutally 
that he died a few months later from his wounds. I can tell you about this man. This is uh, Pastor John Adams. Now, not the vice president or the president. This is John Adams, the preacher from, from Durham, uh, New Hampshire. He, uh, he was a, a, a very active preacher. In fact, before the war started, he and his men went out and gathered up all the ammunition and all the gunpowder so it wouldn't fall into the hands of the British. I'm told that he hid the gunpowder under his pulpit. Now, if you can just imagine, every Sunday while he's preaching these fiery sermons, he's standing on hundreds of pounds of gunpowder. It's a wonder that one of those fiery sermons hadn't made a spark, blown the church sky high. But from what I hear of the watered-down sermons your generation hears, your modern preachers would be in no such danger because their watered-down sermons couldn't make a spark if you doused them with kerosene and threw a torch on them. But not preachers of my day. Oh, no. We preach the truth and let it fall where it fell. I could tell you about John Treadwell. I'm told he kept a loaded flintlock in his pulpit like this. And every Sunday when he went up to preach, he had his Bible under one arm and his cartridge box under the other because he didn't know which one he'd need before he was finished. Jonathan French from Andover, Massachusetts. Why, when he heard about the Battle of Bunker Hill, you know what he did? He resigned his church, went home, got his flintlock and his medical bag, marched off and joined the army. Example after example I could give you. And we were a bold lot. Probably no better example of the boldness that we preachers have than old John Cleveland. This is a drawing of old Cleveland. He was from Ipswich, Massachusetts. Now, now he was infuriated, and let me tell you why. Uh, King George had made the British general Thomas Gage the king of Massachusetts, I guess. And he made it pretty hard on the preachers and the churches because they blamed the war on us. So, oh, Cleveland was so angry that he wanted to write a letter to General Gage. But now how was he going to get a letter to that British general? And then he landed on the idea. He would print the letter in the newspaper. And then not only could General Gage read the letter, but all the citizens could read it as well. Here's a little section of John Cleveland's letter to General Gage. Thou profane, wicked monster of falsehood. Your late infamous proclamation is as full of notorious lies as a toad or a rattlesnake of deadly poison. You are an abandoned wretch. Without speedy repentance, you will have an aggravated damnation in hell. I've often said, Preacher Cleveland, why don't you tell us what you really think, right? Do you realize he could have been executed for that? You see, he didn't care. Now, let me tell you why he didn't care. Preachers of my era cared more about truth than we did applause and comfort. And that's the reason that Cleveland wasn't afraid to write those words. It wasn't just Presbyterians and Lutherans. The Baptists were in on it. Charles Thompson from Warren, Rhode Island, when the British came in there, they burned his house and his church. Well, he joined the Continental Army. He served fighting for liberty. Unfortunately, he was captured by the British and he was thrown on a prison ship. Now, these prison ships were terrible. Oh, they're terrible places. In fact, if you ask me, those soldiers on those prison ships faced a fate worse than death itself. During the war, almost 12,000 of our patriots died on those prison ships. That highest death rate was among the preachers. 
Oh, Moses Island was a preacher who was thrown on a prison ship. Finally, after many days on that ship, he decided he'd jump overboard and try to swim to safety. Unfortunately, he underestimated just how weakened his body had become. And when he jumped into the water, he found out that he didn't have the strength to swim. You know what those redcoats did? They stood there and watched him as he drowned. And then when his body floated to the top, that he stood over on the bank and left him there to decay. That's what they thought about us preachers. Joab Houghton was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Hopewell, New Jersey. Like me, he climbed up through the ranks and and was promoted uh, as he served. But when the war was over, he continued to serve and he became a member of the very first legislature of the state of, of New Jersey. Four days after Lexington and Concord, word reached New Jersey about the fight. Well, O'Houghton gathered all of his congregation together and he jumped up on that very rock right there. Today it's the top of the memorial that describes what he did. But he stood on this rock and here's what he said to the men of his congregation. He said, men of New Jersey, the Redcoats are murdering our brethren in New England who follows me to Boston. I'm told that every man in Houghton's church went home and got his musket and followed their pastor off to fight for liberty. Over and over and over I could tell you this story. Many of us preachers were there during that terrible cold winter in 77, 78 at Valley Forge. I'm telling you, we didn't think it was ever going to stop snowing. The coldest I've ever been in my whole life. And there we were pinned in, freezing to death, starving to death, just simply trying to make things hang on until the spring And we did. We continued to drill. We continued to practice because we knew we had to live to fight again that next spring. And it was preachers like me and Houghton and others who ministered to the troops and and, and to General Washington. And I really believe that we played a major role in helping to hold that army together so we could live to fight again when the warmer weather came. I'm told that today, if you go to Valley Forge, you can actually tour the reconstructed Muhlenberg Brigade barracks where my men and I spent that terrible cold winter. Well, I told you that we preachers were bold, but i got to also tell you that we were brave. And there is none that illustrates that better than this gentleman right here. This is Thomas Allen. He was from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And as you can see, he was not only the chaplain, but he was the commander of the Berkshire Militia. He was a preacher. To show you what kind of a fighting man he was, at the Battle of Bennington, Vermont, on August the 16th, 1777, he led his men out onto the battlefield wearing his preaching robe. Once he got his men all assembled where they were supposed to be, he walked right out toward the British into the killing zone, jumped up onto a stump, and gave them the opportunity to surrender before telling his men to open fire. Well, they recognized him, and somebody said, well, there's Preacher Allen. Somebody ought to pop him. And the British fired a whole volley of musket fire at him. Well, wearing his hat, one of those musket balls went through his hat and put a hole in it. I'm told that infuriated, he walked back to his men, stood beside his brother Joseph, and he said, Joe, I'm a better shot than you. You load, I'll shoot. And they fought all day long together at the Battle of Bennington, Vermont, as they returned the favor to the British. All day long, that preacher fought. He survived the battle. When the battle was over, he helped to care for the wounded, the dying, 
But at the end of the week, he had to jump on his horse and ride some 30 miles back to his church. But when he got there, preparing to preach, one of the men from his church came up to him and said, Preacher, I need to talk to you. I heard the other day over Bennington, you fought like a common soldier. Alan said, well, yes, I did. Every man had to do his duty. He said, but you're a preacher for Pete's sake. I mean, surely you didn't kill anybody, did you? And Alan said, well, I, I, you know, I don't know if I killed anybody, but I did notice that behind a particular bush, there was a frequent flash. And every time that flash occurred, one of our men would fall. So I took steady aim and I fired at that bush. I don't know if I killed anybody, but I put out that flash. And that's Pastor Thomas Allen. His brother was Moses, the one who drowned trying to escape that prison ship. See, the sacrifice of liberty that was paid was high. High. Now some of you are probably wondering, well, where in the world did preachers like you guys come from? Never heard about preachers like you. Well, you see, a few years before the war began, the churches in the colonies were backslidden, dead. And then something happened. I understand that your historians call it the first great awakening. God did something. And a mighty revival swept through our churches. Men like George Whitfield would literally stand on kegs and preach in public while they were blowing horns and beating on drums to try to drown him out. Some of the greatest preachers we've had in our history, men like Jonathan Mayhew, Jonathan Edwards preaching the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, George Whitfield, as I mentioned. All those men were preaching in those days, and young men like me grew up in that kind of an atmosphere. So when the time came to fight, we were ready. We were ready. Well, I was not the only preacher in my family. I had a number of brothers, and one of those brothers was named Frederick Muhlenberg. Frederick was a preacher like me, but very much not like me. He pastored over in New York City, so he was a city preacher. And he said that politics and war were beneath the man of a cloth, and he criticized me for being involved to one of our other brothers. Well, when I found out about it, i got to tell you, I was mad. I was spitting mad. And so I shot an old, a letter back off to old Frederick, letting him know exactly what I thought. In, in fact, with your indulgence, I would, uh, I'd like to read a portion of this letter that, that, I, uh, that I sent to my brother. Um, it begins with, Frederick, I am a layman like all those around me, but I am a, uh, I'm a member of society as well, and my liberty is as dear to me as to any man. Now, should I sit still and enjoy myself while the best blood of the continent is spilling? Heaven forbid it. Now, do you think if America is conquered that that we'll be safe? Well, far from it. And wouldn't you sooner fight like a man than die like some dog? I am called by my country to its defense, I said. Now, Frederick... The cause is just and noble. And so far am I from thinking that I am wrong. I am convinced it is my duty so to do. A duty I owe to my God and to my country. Take that, Frederick. Well, you think that caused my brother to see the light? I don't know. But I can tell you he soon felt the heat. 
Because not long after that, the British invaded New York. And you know what they did? When they came into New York, they did what they did in most towns. They either burned or desecrated the churches, including my brother's church. Barely got out of there alive. Now, what does my fancy pants preacher have to say about getting involved in politics and war? Well, Frederick, who said preachers shouldn't get involved, immediately joined the Continental Army. And then after he joined the Continental Army in the Congress, he joined and, and became a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And my brother, who said that preachers shouldn't get involved, became the very first Speaker of the House of the United States of America after the war. And was of the original signers of the Bill of Rights. Quite a turnaround, wouldn't you say, for a guy who said preachers shouldn't be involved in politics? So what changed my brother? Well, I wish I could tell you that it was the letter. But I don't think that's what changed him. Here's what I think changed him. I think he got pinched so hard it hurt. And he finally had to do something. Now my question to you is this. Those of you in your 21st century. The church of my day did its job. We stood up. My question to you is how hard are you going to have to be pinched before you wake up like my brother did and take your stand? Liberty hangs in the balance with every generation. Mine did its job. The verdict's still out on yours. Friends, I... uh, I spent the majority of my life in the ministry to this point. I'm 59. I'll be 60 next month. I uh, started preaching when I was 16. But you know, all the time that I've been in the ministry, except for just the last few years, I didn't know a thing about the preachers I've been telling you about. I'd never heard of Peter Muhlenberg. I'd never heard of Frederick. I'd never heard of Thomas Allen. I didn't know that Paul Revere rode to a preacher's house when he went to Lexington. I didn't know any of that. You know why? Because I was not taught it. I had no idea that preachers like this, William Smith, understood that our religious and our civil liberties are linked together in what he called an indissoluble bond. And that if you lose one, by definition, you lose them both. See, I I didn't understand that. I I didn't realize that men like George Duffield played such a critical role in our liberties. In fact, after the war was over, Duffield was writing a letter talking about the role that the preachers played in our war of independence. You might want to listen to just a moment of it. As quick as a flash of lightning glares from pole to pole, so sudden did a military spirit pervade those then limited colonies. Nor were those of the sacred order wanting to their country when her civil and religious liberties were all at stake. But as became fateful watchmen, they blew the trumpet on the walls of our Zion and sounded an alarm for defense. Would to God that preachers today were sounding the alarm. Would to God that the pulpits were ringing with the notes of freedom. See, this is why preachers preached election sermons. And why they preached to the military in what were called artillery sermons. See, they knew 
what I've now come to understand that our liberties run on two rails. You have civil liberty and you have religious liberty. And as long as those two rails are secure, the train of state can go right down the tracks. But you surrender one of those rails, and guess what happens to the train? Runs off the tracks. Friends, look around you. That's what's happening today in America. We're losing our liberties. Now, some say, well, we're Christians. We'll just focus on spiritual things. And I totally agree. But when did things like liberty and justice cease being spiritual? You see, we started to compartmentalize our lives into the secular and the sacred. Our founding generation knew nothing of that. Here's John Witherspoon. He was a Presbyterian preacher, served in the convention that wrote the Declaration of Independence and was also the president of Princeton. Listen to what he says. There is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved entire. It's what I said a while ago when I was quoting William Smith. You lose one, you lose them both. So the idea that we'll just let the government do whatever it wants and we'll just meet together inside our walls won't work. Because once they get enough out of control out there, they'll come in here. This is what the black regiment understood. See, the Bible tells us that God created three institutions so that we can live in civil society with one another. The home, the state, and the church. But for the last hundred years, we've told preachers and Christians, don't you talk about politics in the church house. And so during that period of time, that institution has risen up and it's trying to exterminate the other two. Look at the attack on the church and the family, the home. So it's time that we become salt and light. Henry Ward Beecher, a New York preacher, an abolitionist, once said, It is sometimes said that preachers must not preach politics. I tell you, they'd have to toe-hop and skip and jump through two-thirds of the Bible if they did not. I challenge you, go home and see how many Old Testament heroes you can find that weren't involved in government at some level. You can't hardly find any. You know why? Because there was no separation. That's a relatively new concept. That's damning our children and our grandchildren. Historians knew it before the war between the states. 1862. Frank Moore said the preachers of the revolution did not hesitate to attack the great political and social evils of their day. Today you can't get them to touch it with a ten foot pole. A historian two years before that, John Wingate Thornton, said the fathers of the republic, notice this, did not divorce politics and religion, but they denounced the separation as ungodly. What are we told today? The exact opposite. We're told if you mix politics and religion, that's when you've sinned. Our founding framing generation thought the exact opposite. And it's why we have the liberties that we enjoy today. Adrian Rogers from Memphis, Tennessee, now in heaven, said, It was God who created human government. It is therefore inconceivable that God would create government and then tell his people to stay out of it. But that's exactly what we've done. Now, what happens when the church goes silent? What happens to a culture? Well, we only have to look at 1930s Germany. You see, during the time when the Nazis and Hitler were rising to power, did you know that the church leaders were trying to make all kinds of allegiances and alliances with the Nazis, thinking if they could stay neutral, they'd be safe? How well did that work out? Millions paid the price, not only in concentration camps, but on battlefields. There were a few who spoke out. 
Men like old Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But he paid with his life. Because the church waited too long to speak out. Is that what we're going to do? Samuel Adams, one of our founders, one of the, the leader of the Sons of Liberty in Boston, didn't ever claim to be a prophet, but he said something once that I think is very prophetic. He said, if ever a time should come that vain and aspiring men possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its most experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. I would submit to you today that the time that Adams was talking about is upon us. We need our most experienced patriots. And who better than Christians who've been set free by the blood of Jesus to love and understand liberty the most. We shouldn't be bringing up the caboose. We ought to be leading the train. But we're hiding. Don't offend anybody. You know, for years, I've suspected what Barna discovered in 2014. He was asking preachers, Why don't you guys preach on these controversial subjects as if they ought to be controversial? Don't you think they're in the Bible? They said, oh, the Bible deals clearly with all those things. He said, you're going to preach on them? And they said, no. So he asked the preachers, why do you avoid certain now controversial passages of Scripture? Here's the two top reasons that preachers gave. They said, number one, we're afraid that it'll hurt our attendance. And number two, we're afraid it'll hurt the size of our offerings. So, according to the preachers in America, money and power and fame is more important to them than God's word and truth. That's where we are. Now, I think you have a pastor who's a cut above. But friends, we have Christians and church leaders and deacons and preachers all over that don't know any of this stuff. And in fact, we'll stand and argue with you and deny all of this. And I'm telling you, the reason why primarily is because they don't want to make waves. Well, I want to close with one last story of one last preacher. I want you, if you would, to put on your imaginary or your imagination cap with me. And let's, let's travel back in time and go back to rural New Jersey. You say, well, where in New Jersey are we going? Well, we're going to a little community called the Forks of the Delaware where a preacher by the name of John Rossbrug pastored. He actually lived in that very house that you see on the screen there. We don't have a portrait of John, but we do have a portrait of James, his son, that you see there. Now, John Rossbrug, when the war broke out, was uh, getting up in years. He was 63. And uh, he never was a part of the... uh, regular military, so he would not have worn a coat like uh, Peter Muhlenberg had on a while ago. No, he would have worn a civilian's coat, something like this. And rather than wearing a tricorn hat, it's very possible that uh, Ross Brug would have worn a a preacher's hat. So he would have, uh, he would have looked something like this. I'd been preaching these principles from my pulpit for years. The need, the responsibility for Christians to stand up. I encouraged the young men to go and fight. But I was 63. I was a little too old to go off to war. So I I made the younger men a promise. If you go off to fight, I will stay here and I will protect your families and I will take care of them. Well, that all was fine and good until the, the Redcoats just basically rolled over General Washington and our troops at the Battle of Long Island in New York. 
It was then that I realized that, that every able-bodied man is going to have to do his duty. So I called the remaining men of my congregation together and I said, Men, we have got to rally to the aid of General Washington and to liberty. Who will go? One of the men yelled out and said, Preacher, we'd be happy to go if you would lead us. 63. And I said, it would be my distinct honor. And so get this, at the age of 63, I saddled up. And I rode off with the men of my church. And we found General Washington's army and we joined it. We were a part of the campaign that involved the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey. Most people don't realize that a week after that battle, there was a second battle there because the British tried to retake it using the Hessian forces. During that fight, I became separated from our men by a little creek. Now, you might think, well, why didn't you just jump across the creek on your horse, ride to safety? Well, that's because I knew that if the British caught me, they'd kill me for sure. See, they hated us preachers. So I knew that if I crossed that creek during the daylight, why, it'd be like shooting fish in a barrel. So what I did is I rode my horse all day long, just trying to evade capture, thinking that by the time it was dark, well then see, I could cross over the creek and then I could ride to safety and join my men and everything would be fine. What I underestimated is just, of course, how long I had to ride. And by the end of the day, I had not had a thing to drink. I hadn't had anything to eat. And so I thought, I've got to do something. And so in trying to evade capture, I rode up on an old tavern. And I thought, well, I'll go inside. Maybe I can find me a little morsel of bread or something to eat and some water, coffee, just anything. And so I went inside the tavern. And sure enough, I was able to find something to to help me to kind of regain my strength. I came back out of the tavern and I looked and my horse, the one that I'd ridden up on, was gone, was missing. And I'm hoping maybe he's just pulled free. So I began to walk through the trees and through the grass trying to find my horse because I knew if I was stranded flat-footed here on the wrong side of the, the creek, I'm a dead man. Well, I pushed my way through a group of bushes, a thicket, And would you believe it? I was surrounded by a squad of Hessian soldiers. (laughs) There was nowhere for me to go. They had me dead to rights. Well, these Hessians came over from Germany. The British brought 50,000 of them over to terrify us. And it worked. These men were ruthless on the battlefield. I couldn't run. I couldn't get away. And so I thought, well, maybe they'll take me as their prisoner. And so I said, please, I have a family. I'm a pastor Would you take me as your prisoner? They just laughed at me. Well, I could see there was no mercy to be had. They intended to kill me. And so I said, could I pray before I die? They said, yes. So (laughs) I knelt there on that ground. What do you pray when you know you're just about to meet a brutal death? prayed like you would, I guess. I I prayed for my soul, which was soon going to meet the Lord. I prayed for my family, for my church. I prayed that God would help us to win this war. you got to help us win this fight, Lord. I was praying out loud, distraught, as you can imagine. And then the words of Jesus from the cross just came to my mind. Maybe the Lord brought them there. You remember when Jesus asked the Father not to blame the soldiers for his death? 
I prayed that. Those Hessians began to move in on me and I said, Lord, do not hold these men accountable for my death. You would think that that might have dented, melted those old frozen hard Hessian hearts. Didn't make a dent. As soon as I was through with my prayer, the British soldier, the officer who was commanding those Hessians said, take him. They jumped on me and they bayoneted bayoneted me to death. With such fury and anger that when my body was found, one of the Hessians had rammed his bayonet into me and then broken it off in my body. Another black robe preacher by the name of George Duffield and my wife and her brother gave my body a Christian burial in Trenton, New Jersey, where, where I await the resurrection. You see, when we rode off to fight for liberty, we knew some of us could be wounded. We knew some of us could possibly be killed, but you know, you just kind of push that out of your mind. You don't think about that. The truth is, a lot of us paid a very high price. My generation was willing to die for liberty. Is it too much to ask of you to stand up and speak out for it? That's what I ask of you. Friends, we've heard the stories today of men like John Rossbrug. Joab Trout, the preacher that preached that sermon before Brandywine, killed the next day. James and Hannah Caldwell, both of them killed by the British. Jonas Clark, the preacher of the Minutemen in Lexington. Samuel McClintock sacrificed three of his four sons. Charles Thompson, the Baptist thrown on the prison ship. Naphtali Daggett, the president of Yale, beaten so badly by the British that he died. And these are just... The tip of the iceberg. This is why I believe that this story must be told. Because we've reached a time in our culture where if the church doesn't speak up, there will be no one who believes enough truth to do it. We're the firewall. We're it. This is why my wife and I, even though I've pastored for almost all my life, And I'm today a co-pastor over in Edmond at Fairview Baptist Church with Paul Blair. We still travel all over. Paul's preaching there today so I can be here. Because I believe it's critical that this story be told. It's critical that we bring back the spirit of the Black Robed Regiment. Nobody wants a war. Nobody's calling for people to go get guns and start shooting government agents. But I'll tell you what we are calling for. I'm calling for A return to what we believe. For preachers to get on fire from God and stand up for what is right. And stop worrying about the tithers and the attenders. And worry about how he's going to give an answer to God. For what he does or doesn't preach. So I've been praying that God would raise up a new black regiment. That old spirit and heart. Maybe another great awakening. If not, though I am no prophet, I'm here to tell you our republic is lost. The church has always been, but certainly is today, our only hope. 
without us, it's a lost cause. So I'm going to ask you if you would to join with me in prayer. Now I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment. But first, I want you to pray a prayer between you and God. You know, it's easy enough to say, boy, we like old Dan doing that, man. Dan, take it and go. Do it. Tell the story. Preacher David, do the work. That's just two of us. This is an army. It takes us all. What happens if the commanders run out on the field and all the soldiers stay in the trenches? The commanders are turned into Swiss cheese, right? (laughs) And the battle is lost. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and say, God, what should I be doing? What can I do? God, one time asked Isaiah, who will we send? Who will go for us? Today, God is asking you that very question. Would you bow with me in prayer? Just ask the Lord. What does he want from you? There's a call for men to be In a land where all are free There is hope for liberty Father, we pray today that your spirit would speak to every one of us and that, Lord, we would fill this call, that we would go. Lord, even today, there may be some men and women, young men, young ladies, who maybe your spirit is moving upon today and they just need to come down here, find a place and pray and say, God, here I am, send Father, I pray today that you would raise up a new Black Road Regiment with the spirit of those old leaders who believe these truths so strongly they would stand and die for them if need be. Lord, draw us to yourself as we linger here for just a moment. When they stopped to count the cost and the fight was all but lost When they faced the bitter frost They said go So Father, I pray In the words of Joab Trout from I September the 10th, 1777 God, raise up this new regiment Put a spine in our backs and fire in our souls. And God, prosper the cause. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for allowing me and my team to bring the story of the Black Robe Regiment to Christ's Legacy Church. God bless you. Pray for us that God will use us to continue to share this story. God bless you.